Somebody who has proper appetite signaling, when you consume a meal, you should feel full and you shouldn't be, you shouldn't have cravings for, for more food or whatever. And same thing for when you have elevated ketones, that's, you know, your body should be able to recognize that, okay, I have energy source for my brain. I don't necessarily need food. I'm not gonna stimulate hunger. But when, when you break it down to its core, it's the food that you're putting in your body. And if you're putting low quality foods in your body or you're putting foods that are um, highly processed or they're, they're inflammation promoting, then you're not going to see the changes in your health that you want to see, or at least not as robust as you could be. So body, mind, empowerment. Get stronger, faster, smarter, quicker, friendlier, more helpful, more driven. Everything the body needs. Control your mind. Welcome to the Body Mind Empowerment Podcast. I'm your host, Seamland, and our guest today is Chris Irvin. Chris is a nutrition researcher and the education manager at Perfect Keto and he's known on social media as the catologist. He also has a master's degree in exercise and nutrition science. Chris, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Very excited to be on today. Yeah, and uh, we're actually doing this uh, post-Christmas, so to say, and we're kind of enjoying the last last moments of 2018, so to say. How has the 2018 been so far, so far for you? Oh, it's been a whirlwind, man. It's uh, so many life changes have happened this year. Um, just, you know, beginning of the year, I was kind of in a completely different career doing different things. And now, as you mentioned, I'm, I'm doing the uh, education manager for Perfect Keto, which has been just an awesome opportunity because, you know, it's getting to focus on the things I love to do so much, just researching, writing, uh, educating, all the stuff that um, I really enjoy doing. So, you know, at the beginning of the year, I think I was kind of caught in a trap where I was doing more things that I didn't enjoy doing uh, compared to now. So the, the last half of this year has been just a really incredible opportunity. Mm, nice. So like you're doing uh, mostly like research on science and uh, kind of composing it together into the blog or something like that. Yeah, yeah. So I do um, kind of a lot of different things. One of the things is like a lot of product education. So just you know, teaching people how to, whether it's internally within the company or externally, teaching mm. them how to use the products, uh, the best uses of the products, timing, you know, what's the science behind it. And then just, you know, keeping up on new keto research in general, you know, whenever new studies are coming out, uh, trying to be on top of breaking them down, finding the good ones, kind of relaying the bad ones to everybody. So, you know, that's, that's kind of the big thing is just being able to sit down and, and read through research. And at the beginning of this year, I was doing a lot more, um, you know, marketing stuff and more business related stuff that was kind of pulling away from my ability to like read research. And uh, one of the things I always tell people is like with research, I feel like it's if you don't use it, you definitely lose it. And if you're, you know, if you go six months, eight months without reading much research, you definitely aren't as sharp. Uh, and you're not as as up to date with the stuff and research changes very quickly new stuff's mm -hmm. coming out all the time so now i'm able to really stay on top of things and you know catch all the new stuff when it's coming out and break it down and it's been a lot of fun right yeah it, it is so to say that science is uh, progressing very rapidly and uh, you do <laughs> you do have to kind of go out of your own way and uh, really keep yourself up to date with all these new re studies that are coming out all the time but uh, what yeah. What are, what are some of the uh, studies that you're maybe most excited about that have come out recently? Yeah, I think the, the most recent study that I was really excited about was a study that I, I'm drawing a blank on the university that it came out of, but there was a recent study that came out that was a super practical study where they took 
uh, just general population, put them on a ketogenic diet for, I believe it was eight weeks. Um, they, you know, measured a bunch of things. Obviously, weight loss is one of the biggest things that people tend to measure in studies. But they measured, um, what was super interesting about the study is that it was, they did two weeks of calorie restriction where they actually had them tracking macros, tracking calories. And then after those two weeks, they put them on an ad libitum ketogenic diet, which means that they're allowed to eat as much as they want, as long as they're staying, you know, below their carb threshold and they're staying with, you know, keto, keto friendly foods. Mm -hmm. And what was interesting in this study that got me really excited because it's what we talk about all the time was that during the last six weeks of these studies, when these people were allowed to eat as much as they wanted, they were actually calorie restricting still. They were incidentally eating less calories than what they were before, and which is a huge testament to kind of the uh, appetite suppression that we typically see on a keto diet. And it's one of those things that we talk about all the time, but to see it in a study that's very practical is, is really good. And on top of just seeing that, they also measured a lot of you know, hormones and different things like that and saw that there was actually changes in like gene expression and changes in, um, in hormones that were also conducive of the, this reduction in hunger hormones, uh, reductions in, in appetite and stuff like that. So it's like there was not, not just a psychological component, but also a physiological component to yeah. this uh, reduction in appetite. So, and, and which is, which for most people, if you don't read up on this stuff in research, it's actually pretty profound because you don't really see that with diets. Typically we see when you calorie restrict, it leads to dramatic increases in hunger hormones and mm. you know dramatic increases in all these different signaling molecules that will make you eat more because your body doesn't necessarily want to lose body fat and stuff like that. So it kind of shows why this ketogenic diet tends to be a little bit different than these other diets. You know, a lot of people want to say that calories in versus calories out, that's all that matters. The only reason why keto is successful is because you're in a calorie deficit. But people who say that, they don't realize all these other things that are going on. You know, if you're seeing these dramatic reductions in hunger signaling, then you're going to be a lot less likely to put weight back on after yeah. you're done with the diet or as you continue to follow the diet. So it, it, may, it kind of just shows that like we shouldn't look at diets as just calories, really. Right. Yeah, like because uh, I believe, yeah. you know, most people who have gone on some sort of a caloric restricted diet, they, they may kind of remember these <laughs> negative side effects of whether that be some sugar cravings or hunger pains or simply thinking about food all the time or something like that. And I do also notice that on keto, you experience less of these uh, symptoms, so to say, of uh, being, in, being in a diet. And I do notice that uh, getting out of a diet is also kind of easier when you're doing keto because, like I said, you're not going to experience this sort of a rebound effect of, you know, I want to eat as much food as possible and kind of gorge myself after that. But because, you know, it, it's kind of on keto, everything is more stable, so to say. You don't never feel that deprived. And uh, the, adhere, the general adherence is also, I've seen some studies that people simply, one of the reasons why low-carb diets may work is because it's easier to stick to. And most people will kind of subconsciously start to eat less calories just because they don't feel that hungry. Yeah. And, and one of the, obviously one of the biggest reasons outside of like the hormones and, and the other signaling molecules that are going on is also this, you're keeping your blood sugar stable. Mm. So, you know, when you're following a higher carbohydrate diet, you get these, you know, kind of roller coaster of your blood sugar that tends to lead to a lot of hunger. But, you know, for a lot of people who are, who may be following the kind of the way that the ketogenic diet is typically promoted now. A lot of people, when I talk about this, like 
appetite suppression and stuff, they say, well, you know, I never experienced that. How come I don't experience that? And, and one of the big reasons why I think people don't experience that is because the way that people are eating keto now, this more, what, what I kind of call the lazy keto approach where people are having more of these, you know, keto sweets and they're having all these foods that are super hyper palatable. And then they wonder why they're not having this reduction in hunger. And it's because of these, you're, you're still having these sweet foods. And even though you might not be spiking blood sugar, you might still be in ketosis that's still going to be, especially if you're somebody who's had sugar addictions in the past, that's still going to be really hard for you to experience that appetite suppression. And, and that's really one of the things I, one of the reasons why I think carnivore can be beneficial. This is something that Dr. Anthony Gustin talks about a lot where, you know, one of the reasons why carnivore tends to be so great is because when you're just eating meat, meat's not super palatable. So you're not going to really have a tendency to overeat and you're not, you're not going to have a tendency to have a bunch of cravings when you're just consuming meat. Typically you're going to kind of eat to satiety and that's going to be it. So it, it, for people who are kind of, who are listening to this, who are wondering how come I'm not, I've been doing keto for a long time. How come I'm not experiencing these same things? It's probably because you're consuming this keto diet that is not really conducive of, of craving reductions. It's probably more conducive of, of, you know, promoting these cravings. Hmm. Yeah, it's, it is a good point, so to say, that uh, uh, in my own experience, uh, I can say that if my ketones are also slightly higher, or if I'm like doing a little longer fast, then uh, my appetite suppression and cravings will also be lower, so to say, versus if I'm, you know, like a slightly uh, less deeper of a ketosis, or if I'm completely out of ketosis, like if I, if I accidentally consume a bit of more carbs on some days, then the next day, I immediately experience more hunger and more of this like psychological kind of search for food <laughs> or something that something that is kind of keeping my mind distracted and uh, i do notice in a sense that uh, the the aspect of the presence of ketones kind of prevents any kind of additional hunger or it also keeps your brain more sharp during the day yeah and and one of the reasons why that's the case is because you when you have elevated ketones in the blood that's elevated energy source mm. so you know, if you have proper appetite signaling, your body, you know, that's for, and, and that's kind of a huge topic in itself is appetite signaling. But for somebody who has proper appetite signaling, when you consume a meal, you should feel full and you shouldn't be, you shouldn't have cravings for, for more food or mm, whatever. And same thing for when you have elevated ketones, that's, you know, your body should be able to recognize that, okay, I have energy source for my brain. I don't necessarily need food. I'm not going to stimulate hunger. But what we do see is that in people who are obese, they have impaired appetite signaling. And that's why overeating is such a common thing. And, you know, ketones is, that's one of the, the benefits of, of probably throwing intermittent fasting in with your ketogenic diet is that between your meals, you're getting that little bit sharper increase in ketone levels, which is probably going to be one of the reasons why you're not seeing, you know, appetite signaling and all this stuff. So I think that's, that's a big thing is, is, you know, I'm not a huge fan to say that, elevating your ketone levels is the most important thing and that you should chase higher ketone levels. But I do think that having elevated ketones in that sense is important. Yeah. Yeah. I also agree that uh, you don't necessarily have to be in like very therapeutic range of ketosis all the time to gain these benefits. You can even be at like very mild ketosis with 0.5 and such and still experience the mental clarity and still gain the uh, sort of a cognitive boost so uh, it's not it's not that you have to go all in all the time with the ketones and you deliberately have to bump your ketones up just to think that uh, you need to maintain this uh, this sort of a range 
but uh, let's talk about ketones then, so to say that uh, a lot of people do say that it is necessary to measure ketones and such and see how many uh, you know uh, beta beta hydroxybutyrate is in your blood. But what does it actually mean, so to say? And uh, it's you you mentioned it. It's like an energy source uh, that is present in the blood, but uh, uh, how how does it affect the body in a sense with these uh, appetite suppression and such? Yeah, so you know ketones. What a lot of people don't realize is that outside of being just uh, an energy source that can be used for the brain or used by various cells of the body, is that they're also signaling molecules and they can signal from many different things. And you know, there's even a lot of research in like cell cell culture models where they can you know signal for changes in gene expression, which is pretty profound. And that's why. You know, therapeutically, we see such a benefit from these things because, you know, if you're able to actually change the expression of genes uh, and you're actually able to send different signals for different physiological changes in the body, then that's that's pretty profound. And that's going to be that's a lot different than, you know, I mean, if we look at medicine, that's essentially what we're trying to accomplish with a lot of these different medicines and some of these more advanced medicines that are coming out. And to the fact that we can potentially do this through a diet or um, also through the use of like exogenous ketones is pretty amazing. And uh, when, but when it comes to ketone testing, I think that that's one of these things that our early understanding of a ketogenic diet that, you know, we all kind of searched for this, what's an optimal blood ketone range, uh, that kind of led us to chasing these higher ketone levels and that led us to kind of freaking out about testing ketones. You know, a lot of people kind of do it obsessively. And I do think it's important. I think testing is is always a good thing. I think it's good for you to see how different foods react to your body. But I think the problem that people don't necessarily realize is that we don't really have a great understanding of what our blood ketone levels really mean. You know, when we test them, all we're really getting is we're getting a snapshot of what is available what, you know, how much beta hydroxybutyrate is available in the blood at the time when you're testing. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you are effectively utilizing those ketones or mm. uh, doesn't mean that they're actually uh, providing a whole lot of benefit in your body. And that's one of the reasons why you see, you know, it's very, I see this almost every time somebody starts a keto diet, the first week to two weeks, you'll see somebody having very high levels of ketones, you know, it'd be 1.5, 2.0, 2.5. And they're, they're stoked because they're like, well, hey, I'm, you know, I know higher ketone levels are good. This must be a great thing. And then they get further down the road and their ketone levels start dropping a little bit. And if you're like me, you know, they, they rarely get above one. Maybe they're, they're kind of in the 0.8 to 0.9 range usually, mm -hmm. maybe 1.2. And, you know, now we kind of look at this as like we're just comparing numbers and we say, well, my ketone levels are going down. What's, what's wrong? And what a lot of people don't realize is that we don't have an ability to track how, how much ketones our cells are taking up and actually utilizing. You know, hopefully we can advance our technology and we can actually start to, to do that with like some ketone tracing. I know there's a lot of researchers that are trying to advance that technology so we can track that stuff, but currently we can't do that. So, you know, we really don't, when you test your ketone levels, we, what that can be good for is letting you know that your body's producing ketones, mm. which for a lot of people, especially inners, that's beneficial because, you know, you might, it's very easy to, easy to fall victim of hidden carbs or to maybe you're not tracking your carbohydrates and they're slowly creeping up or something else is going on that, you know, it's good to know that, Hey, I'm producing them. My diet's probably on point, but to sit there and, and try to look for this optimal ketone range, I really don't think that it's necessary. And I think it probably causes more stress than it's worth. Um, so I actually think that glucose is probably the better thing to be testing mm -hmm. because that's going to be 
you know, if your glucose levels are, are low, especially in the fasted state, and after you consume a meal, if you're not getting dramatic increases in your glucose, you're, you're probably going to get some even in a keto-friendly meal. Um, but if you're not getting these dramatic increases in glucose, then things are probably going pretty well for you. So I actually think when it comes down to it, and, and what I do personally is I actually prefer to test my, my glucose more frequently, and I'll test my ketones uh, a lot more sparingly compared to mm. glucose. Yeah, because like uh, I also noticed that after after you know longer keto adaptation, then uh, your ketones will slightly drop because you know the mitochondria become more efficient at uh, using them for fuel, so to say, and, and they don't keep them in the bloodstream for that long. Mm -hmm. hmm. Yeah, and the other thing too is that you're you're not going to produce. You know, your body is it's an efficient machine, and especially when you're following the ketogenic diet, it becomes a lot more efficient. So you're not going to produce much more than what you need. So, and this is probably more theoretical than it is scientific, but when you start a ketogenic diet, if your body's been used to using glucose for energy, especially your brain, and you know, people have to remember that your brain has such a high energy demand. When you take that away, your body's probably going to panic a little bit. You know, you have to make sure that you're providing enough energy to the brain and, mm -hmm. and that panic might lead to this, you know, rapid increase in ketone production. But over time, I think what happens is your body starts to bounce out and say, okay, this is probably what I need on a regular basis. I don't need to be overproducing these ketones um, because, you know, it does take, it, it is, uh, requires energy to produce ketones. It is a bodily function that has demands. So, you know, your body with trying to be as efficient as possible, it's not going to want to overproduce ketones that you're just going to be excreting. It's going to want to kind of match the uptake. So, um, I, I think that that's another thing too, between, you know, like you said, your mitochondria becoming more efficient. Uh, your cells actually becoming a lot better at taking in these ketones, which a lot of people I think don't don't necessarily get that part either that when you just because you have elevated ketones doesn't necessarily mean that you're efficient at using those ketones mm. like, you know, you, you can see after a couple of days, you can be, you know, have way elevated ketones. Like if, if you do calorie restriction for calorie restriction, carb restriction for three days, you could see ketone levels that would be considered in the therapeutic range. But why is it that you're experiencing brain fog and fatigue and, and mm. you know, the, these ego flu symptoms everybody talks about? Well, it's because, you know, you haven't upregulated these transporters that allow you to take these ketones in yet. So mm. as you become better at that and your mitochondria become more efficient, you're going to probably see a lot less in the blood. So to, to panic about that, I think, is probably causing you a lot, a lot of unnecessary stress that you don't need. Yeah, it is. It is. It's, it's so true that uh, you, you do need to uh, become uh, keto adapted in the long term because there's a difference between being keto adapted and being in ketosis so to say and you you don't necessarily have to feel completely mentally clear and sharp and be healthy if your if your ketones are too high unless you're like actually feeling it so <laughs> the actual yeah. the actual well-being of yourself is uh you know the first first sign of uh, that you're making uh, some progress and they're doing something right yeah and that's why I think when a lot of people ask the question, like, how long does it take to get in ketosis? That's probably like the most common question that anybody will ask. Mm -hmm. And my answer, you know, everybody wants to say two weeks, four weeks. My answer is usually like, well, to get in ketosis, maybe just two days, you know, mm -hmm. that, that might be all it takes for you to actually get in ketosis. Now, I think what question you're probably meaning to ask is how long does it take to get keto adapted? Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, could be two to four weeks weeks depending on the person so um but that's that's kind of the thing that everybody wants to know and it really is it just it depends and it's a little different for everyone right what kind of symptoms can people expect to see that uh, they are becoming more keto adapted 
Well, I think the biggest one is, you know, the, well, weight loss is going to happen regardless. So as you're, you're following a ketogenic diet, you're probably going to experience weight loss, especially if you're not tracking your calories, because, you know, if you are, if you're experiencing that reduction in hunger, then you're probably going to be calorie restricting. And while I don't think the calories are super important, um, or I don't think that they're the most important thing, if you are in a calorie deficit, you are going to be losing weight. So that's definitely a clear sign. But I think that the, the for me at least, the cognitive function and the increased energy is, is the most robust that I've experienced and probably the most that I see reported especially the energy in general, you know, a lot of people, they're just tired all the time. Like our, our population as a whole, you know, it's just, it's coffee all day until you go to bed and then you get bad sleep and then you wake up and you do it again. It's just low energy levels. And a lot of that's because we're super insulin resistant. We we're super inflamed. We are consuming a diet that leads to these, you know, rapid increases in blood sugar and dips that cause all kinds of, you know, energy surpluses and deficits and stuff like that. So I think that that's probably the biggest one where you'll see you know, anybody, any general population, when they follow keto diet, after a week or two, they'll be like, man, my energy is just crazy. I've never felt so good. And you, you might even, they may even experience that following a, maybe not the best keto diet, like even the laziest keto diets might still lead to these changes because it's so much better than the alternative. It's so much better than what you were doing before with, you know, the standard American diet and all of that. So I think that um, the, the increased energy is probably the most robust. And but then outside of that, you get some other things like your sleep tends to get better over time. Uh, you start to notice that you are, um, <clears throat> like like I said, your cognitive function is getting a little bit better. Usually your exercise endurance is becoming better. So, you know, if you're, a, if you're more fat adapted, you can tap into a larger fuel source. You're going to notice that you can probably push your exercise a little bit better. Um, mood is another big one. You know, they're starting to study the diet a lot for different um you know, anxiety, depression, different mood disorders like that. So that's another one that we tend to see a lot of, of increases in over time. So it's, um, it's pretty, you know, it's one of those things that when I, when I see this, you see all these people reporting more energy, they're happy and they're healthy. And then you see people trying to say that the keto diet is, is just a, a weight loss diet. It's very confusing to me. I think that that's kind of a telltale sign that there's so much more to it. Mm. Yeah, because uh, one can do a low carb diet that isn't gonna reap the benefits of ketosis or keto adaptation and one can do like a well-structured keto diet that actually kind of induces these metabolic changes and uh, creates these new pathways uh, but i do want to also add uh, to the symptoms that you mentioned that uh, do probably during the first phases of the diet your exercise performance will probably drop because of like not not having uh, they built up the mitochondrial efficiency at that point and definitely like explosive power and speed those things will slightly decrease during the initial adaptation phase as well but afterwards like after several weeks and months then it will probably return and uh, you will kind of regain these things but uh do you think that uh, keto for sports what kind of sports do you think that uh, keto is going to work best for yeah and and to really to go off of that too, I think what you, you point out something that's extremely important and something that people don't often consider when they're reading studies, you know, you'll see a lot of people who will report a study saying, you know, ketogenic diet or low carb diet impairs exercise performance. And that's the headline. It gets shared on Facebook. Everybody's passing it around. And when you go and you read the study, you see that it's like, and what this is, I think the most popular one that people often refer to is like a three day study where they take like a carb athlete. They put them on a keto diet yeah. for three days. They test their performance. 
say their performance is down. And like you said, it's like, well, of course it is. You know, these people, they haven't become adapted to the diet. They're not producing and utilizing ketones. So um, the best, when you are looking at studies for sports performance, you want to make sure that you're looking at ones that are at least at the bare minimum four weeks long to allow these people to actually experience uh, keto adaptation. When you do that, you actually see that performance tends to come back. So mm. when it, when to go on your question, what sports are, are keto probably best for endurance sports, I think are, are primary are primarily the number one, you know, that's where we have the most research and, you know, it makes sense. Obviously if you're doing prolonged exercise at a low intensity, uh, we know that that tends to uh, rely more on fat for fuel. And if you're keto, you're able to tap into that fat source and if you're keto adapted, you're able to tap into that fat source quicker. So, you know, for a lot of carb adapted athletes, that's why they have to have these sugar packs, you know, when they have their whatever carbs they had before competition or, or an event, then they burn through those They have glycogen. But then once that's out, there can be this lag time before they're able to effectively tap into this fuel source of fat, which is massive, you know, right. even for the leanest of athletes, I think it's like 20,000 calories that you can have stored. Um, so it's, it's this huge fuel source that most people can't tap into. So I think for endurance athletes, it's a no brainer, especially, you know, these ultra endurance athletes. Um, it's, it's a no brainer for that. But I think the other one that a lot of people don't consider is the, uh, sports that require you to lose weight for. So, you know, things like, uh, wrestling or MMA stuff that you have to meet a weight class for a lot of these people, they, they're trying to, you know, they don't want to go into calorie restriction or, or go into a diet too early during the competition prep phase. And that leads to them, you know, having to take these really, really um, just super intense weight loss programs of losing weight very quickly. That is one super unhealthy, but two also usually impairs their performance. So I think a diet, if, if you do it right, I think it can be a great way to maintain some of your performance, maintain muscle, which is a huge thing and be able to get the, you know, meet the weight class that you need to meet. And which also kind of brings up sports like, like physique related sports, like bodybuilding and stuff. I think that keto during prep for those is really big because, you know, we know that if you go into a super heavy calorie deficit, you're much more likely to lose muscle. And that's something that we see a lot of. You get like these bodybuilders who they try to put on as much muscle as they can because they know they're going to lose some during their prep. But uh, so I think, you know, keto, which we're starting to see be used a lot more during the prep for these sports, we see that uh, it can be pretty great for maintaining muscle while you're in a calorie deficit. So a lot of these people to kind of come in with their their best physiques. Hmm. So I, I think that those are the, the best ones. And then, you know, outside of that, I think that contact sports is a big one. Um, you know, with all of the research that we're seeing with like traumatic brain injuries and stuff, I think that a keto diet for these contact sports is probably, you know, something that we should definitely, I think that we should be considering a lot more, you know, most of the research right now is in animals. So that's definitely a limitation. But I think it's something that we've seen enough evidence in that case that we should be pushing these trials to the next level into these human human studies. Um, and of course, with some of these sports, like you look like look at football and stuff, and maybe we're not quite sure what the difference is in power or the differences in um, some of these different athletic move, like movements that these people might have to complete in these sports. But to me, there's like a trade off, you know, like maybe if you're seeing like a one or two percent decrement in this specific movement or this specific part of your athleticism, but you have reduced inflammation, which is going to be better for longevity as an athlete, or you have, you know, reduced um, 
well, inflammation of the brain, especially if, and if you have an ability to protect your brain, then that's, in my opinion, might be outweighing the, the slight decrement that you may see in some of the other performance metrics. But when we talk about that, we're really, we're speaking about high level athletes. You know, if you're, if you're like me and, and maybe like you two, average Joe's in the gym, just getting after it. To me, I care a lot more about my health than I do about being able to lift 10 more pounds or anything like that. So even if we're not sure about, you know, keto for certain things like strength and power and all of that, um, if you're not an elite athlete, I think that you're probably using that as an excuse to not go keto. I don't think that it's something that really makes that big of a difference. Yeah. yeah. And uh, how do the uh, NFL athletes, how do they use ketones? Then I've, I've seen that uh, they t take some MCT oil or something, some, some packets. Yeah, it's, you know, it's not being used as much as it should be at this point. Um, I think that, I think the MCTs and exogenous ketones, I think it can be good. I think that having the diet as a baseline could be better. And, and the reason why we're, we're talking about this for people who, who are, don't know, it's this traumatic brain injury or concussions that we're seeing. And if, you know, if you're following American football, um, which is for me, that's the primary sport that we see so many concussions in, but we also see it in, um, you know, soccer, or we see it in um, other contact sports like basketball, baseball, we see it in wrestling, or I mean, uh, like MMA, um, all these different sports, we see these just a, such a high prevalence of, of head injuries. And now we're starting to see what the long term effects of these head injuries are, you're seeing, you know, over here, we're in America, we're seeing so many people who um, these athletes who top of their game, top of their career, you know, they, they're finishing up their career, Hall of Famers, they're um, all the money in the world, the happiest can be. And then all of a sudden, these long term symptoms are coming from these concussions that are leading to depression, anxiety, and, and sometimes causing suicide and stuff like that. That is it's really crazy. And uh, it's because of this just repeated, you know, concussions that we're seeing, you know, these guys, people are getting bigger, faster, stronger, and people are hitting harder. And, you know, even though we're trying our best to come out with better technologies to prevent people from experiencing these symptoms or, or taking such rough blows to the head, we're, we're not able to really combat it as much as we would like to be able to. So what, what happens in these cases is that when, when you take a massive blow to the head, your brain has a huge increase in, in glucose uptake. And that's because there's this, um, you know, the brain's trying to repair itself. There's an energy deficit. It's taking up a ton of glucose. And just like your body, when you're following a chronic, when you're chronically consuming a lot of carbohydrates, your brain becomes insulin resistant and it's not able to utilize this, this glucose as well. And which is really what we see in Alzheimer's. It's kind of the same thing. Like in Alzheimer's, we see in other neurodegenerative diseases, we see that over time your brain becomes inefficient at using glucose and that leads to a ton of, of health impairments. And that's what's happening with these concussions is that these people are becoming insulin resistant. That's called causing inflammation in the brain. That's just a recipe for disaster. And when that's happening repeatedly, you can see how that's going to cause some long-term, you know, perform long-term uh, problems with these mm -hmm. athletes. So with a ketogenic diet, what we're seeing is that we know that the brain can efficiently take in ketones and utilize them. And, and when the brain is utilizing ketones, it's actually um, probably a lot better for the brain because it's not creating as much like reactive oxygen species, which isn't going to be creating as much uh, inflammation and all these things. So these ketones, what we're finding in animal research is that even after a concussion or after a traumatic brain injury, the brain can still effectively utilize ketones. And outside of not promoting inflammation and stuff, that's also fixing the energy crisis. And it's also reducing inflammation. 
and it's signaling for all these other, it's improving insulin sensitivity, it's signaling for all these things, improving mitochondrial function that is very conducive of, of a healthy brain. So, you know, I think that what we should be seeing, it's, it's very disheartening when you see somebody take out, like for me, you know, Sunday, I'm sitting down watching a football game. I see some guy take a shot to the head. He's, he's dazed walking off the field and then he's slugging back a Gatorade, you know? So he's just, that's putting fuel on fire right there. It's, it's almost the worst thing that you can do. And so in those cases, you know, you'd love to see people having, you know, consuming exogenous ketones or MCTs. Um, but I also think that having a baseline is important too. Mm. So, you know, if you have, when that, at the time of that brain injury, if you have a ton of glucose in your blood, which a lot of these athletes probably do if they're carb loading beforehand or, you know, doing these like energy, these sugar packets before and whatnot, um, that's, you know, you're still going to be, that's not really going to fix the problem. So I think right. that having maybe exogenous ketones before a competition or having a, at least a baseline of a low carb diet where at the very least your, your blood glucose is low, maybe your ketones aren't elevated, but, but your blood sugar is stable and in a good position, I think is something that we should be considering. Yeah, like uh, that's one of my favorite benefits of the ketogenic diet as well, like the mental clarity and the benefits on the brain and such. And when it comes to like athletic performance, then you definitely don't need to be keto all the time and you and you wouldn't, you know, be optimally be, I think like it, it wouldn't be optimal to uh, kind of be on a high carb diet all the time either. Like uh, the best way to go about it would be to maybe like off season, you train low and you you know promote keto adaptation to a certain extent and when it comes to like uh doing some sort of a competition or such then then you can kind of carb out before that or such because you you will be still able to you know utilize the ketones uh to a certain extent and you can still kind of tap into the most uh, you you can tap into both of the uh, fuel sources both the glycogen as well as the fat and uh, you you have like a baseline like you said which would kind of prevent the complete energy crisis that that may that may arise by by just being able to burn glucose yeah and i think that that's a that's a great way to look at it too because yeah like if if you're we're right now we're speaking of elite athletes so we're talking like professionals who you know that one to two percent could be the difference in their career mm -hmm. that could be the difference between winning and losing so you know if we see that keto maybe isn't the best for those sports in that case then this concept of training low competing high that that might be the best way to go about it and mm -hmm. and what you brought up too which is important is the becoming fat adapted part you know if you if you are fat adapted and you go into the season fat adapted if you're utilizing carbohydrates as an ergogenic aid then chances are that you're probably going to be more insulin sensitive you're probably going to better utilize those carbohydrates yeah. and you may not experience this you know, inflammation and all the stuff that we tend to see when you consume a lot of carbohydrates. So that's, that's kind of an important thing that, you know, you are improving your body's ability to utilize these carbs by following this keto diet in the off season. So I think that, you know, on top of that, and also the, you know, re reducing your chances of injury by improving ins um, inflammation and stuff like that. I think that that's, that's probably a pretty good practice. Now, where that can kind of go the wrong way is when the, the off season ketogenic diet leads into the Overconsumption of carbohydrates during the season where it's like pizza pasta refined carbohydrates and all that stuff so i think that if you take that approach you definitely want to do so responsibly time to carbo load but um especially for the aging athlete you know like as we all know like when we're kids when we're younger you can put your body through really anything and it can handle it like you know my diet when i i played sports when i was in college and you know 
I could put my body through really anything and it would be fine. I, I didn't have to really fuel it that well and it could still mm -hmm. perform at a pretty high level. But, you know, as you start getting into these older ages, like you look at, you know, the pinnacle of, of athlete success in, in America is LeBron James, in my opinion. He's kind of the, the guy. He's, you know, just turned 34 years old. Um, you know, rarely experiences any injuries and, and he takes care of his body. And that's because as you age, you have to take care of these things. And, you know, one of the things we know is that over time, your body becomes inefficient at utilizing carbohydrates. So if you're an athlete, obviously fuel is very, very important. And over time, if your body is, if your main fuel source, your body is becoming resistant to utilizing it, then it's probably not the best idea to have that be the only thing your body can use yeah. for fuel. So, and, and that's, I think a big difference and the longevity of an athlete's career. Yeah, that's that's yeah, that's a good point, so to say. And uh, even for the regular person, uh, that that's even more easier, so to say, to, to stick to. And they can still apply the same kind of principles of not having to be keto all the time and still implementing some carbs, you know, every once in a while. Whether that be for some holiday training days or simply as on like during the holidays or whatever it is, like. Uh, it's it's you're not gonna lose the fat adaptation by simply having one one day of uh, higher carbs and such because your your body doesn't really change things overnight you know and uh, it, you will probably you know experience still the best of both worlds by achieving this sort of a metabolic flexibility. Yeah, and that's something you know I was actually writing about this the other day. I was writing about like targeted keto. Uh, and that was, you know, which for those who don't know, targeted keto is basically just consuming carbohydrates around your exercise. So mm. there's a couple different things that this may be beneficial for. Some people do it for before an exercise as an ergogenic aid. Some people do it as after an exercise to spike insulin to maybe promote some uh, muscle growth. And you know, unfortunately, we don't have a lot of research in this. Um, any research that we have is not in keto adapted athletes. So it's not we're not really able to apply it. But we could theoretically, we could think about it and say that there could be use for this. Um, the, pro the thing would be doing it the right way. So you know, if you're if you're going to do this, you'd want to be consuming that's not an excuse to have pizza after your workout or, or to have like a, a fast block of pancakes before you go in and train. Uh, you know, some of the people like one of my great friends, Jane Downs, she follows a targeted keto approach. And you know, what she'll do is she'll have just some carbohydrates after her training session, but she's having them from like sweet potatoes. Mm -hmm. So she's, you know, she's having very nutrient dense carbohydrate sources. She's not using her exercise as an excuse to eat like a knucklehead, you know? So, yeah. um, that's, that's, I think the biggest thing with it, but you know, with the targeted keto, it's really hard to say whether or not it's, it's beneficial because we, when we look at like a carb adapted athlete and we see if say we're looking for increased performance, because since we're on that topic, if we're saying that targeted keto would be good for increased performance, really all we can refer to at this point is we can refer to a study in a carb adapted athlete. Mm. And it would make sense that we would increase performance in these cases. If you're providing a athlete with the, their primary fuel source, if you're providing right. them with more of it, of course right. we probably see in performance. Um, we don't really have enough research to say whether or not it's good for keto, but what I would hypothetically, I would say that if you're keto adapted and that's first and foremost, the important part, if you're not keto adapted, I don't think you should take this approach because you're probably just hindering your body's ability to get adapted. You really need to get there first. Right. Um, but if you adapted, you're probably going to be more efficient at using those carbohydrates. You're probably going to be more efficient at transitioning back into using ketones and fat. So, you know, theoretically, I would say in these cases, consuming carbs before your training session, 
could be beneficial. But I always kind of say that with a caveat of like, for me, for instance, like I play basketball three times a week. Um, I'm not a professional, so I don't really care if I perform better. For me, I know not having the carbohydrates means that my brain probably works a little bit better. I have a little bit more energy. I don't have the increase in hunger like we were talking earlier. Mm -hmm. So for me, it's not really worth it. Um, but it really depends on what your goal is. You know, if your primary goal is, it's really hard to mix and match goals. You know, it's hard to hit the, the peak of each one of your goals. If your main goal is performance, then it's probably something you should consider. But if you're like me and it's not, maybe it's not really something that you should consider. Yeah. Yeah. And you through that, uh, in my own experience, I can say that the target keto can work, but it's only like for a specific uh, situation. So to say the best type of exercise would be something like highly glycolytic and something higher intensity uh, where you don't really need to focus that hard <laughs> or maybe something like a Tabata session or a hit cardio or some crazy bodybuilding uh, workout with supersets and, and things of like that where you would want to have like some more glycogen and some more, more carbs around. And def definitely, you can overdo it as well. Like if you if you take a bit too many carbs with the target keto, then you will you will probably be feeling worse than if you were to skip it altogether because you're gonna get get kicked out of ketosis, so to say. But if you keep it in a very small dose, uh, then then you will probably utilize those carbs and you will still perform with ketones as well. So there is like a very fine line. And uh, in my own experience, I can say yeah that it usually has to be like a very small dose and uh, taking that at the right time before before doing like this sort of a high intensity type of exercise. Yeah, and that's why self-experimentation is, is so yeah. important with that. It's something that I always preach so much is that, you know, what works for you is going to be different than what works for other people. Some people may notice that this targeted approach isn't good for their performance. Some people may notice that it's so much better for their performance that they can't imagine not doing it. So it, it really is... And that's another limitation to research, of course, is that you can take 30 people, put them in a study, and that's 30 completely different subjects. So even if we were able to study this, it'd be very hard for us to extrapolate a whole lot of information from a study like that. So that, that's, that's the key is that you really got tested. There's different carbohydrate types, uh, different amounts, different timing. Those are all things to consider. But I think as a general rule of thumb, like you said, you probably want to make sure that you're starting with a lower amount. Um, you probably want to, at the very least, try starting with a lower glycemic version. Um, it's hard to say that that's kind of a, a, a topic of targeted keto that I'm not sure about because we don't really know the mechanism behind why carbohydrates may increase exercise performance. We don't have an exact mechanism there. And, you know, if you, you know, they have the, those carbohydrate rinse studies where they, they rinse people's mouths with carbohydrates, they don't even swallow it and they mm -hmm. see increases in performance. And, which kind of shows that like, it's not just necessarily that you're putting the fuel there. There's could be something else going on. And really what it might be is it might just be the dopamine dump. You know, it might just yeah. mean that you're consuming. Yeah. Yeah. Like you feel, you feel great because you had some carbs and that makes you perform at a better level. So we don't really know the mechanism. So that's why it is so important to test. Like maybe somebody needs a higher glycemic, somebody needs a lower glycemic source. Uh, it really just depends. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I do think like the placebo effect of consuming carbs is definitely there and it uh, gets magnified if you are on a keto diet or if you are if you haven't consumed like something sweet in a long time then you, you know, the introducing that sweetness will definitely light up your brain a lot more than if you were to be having them all the time. So that's why the target keto can be you know you're going to gain a much significant uh, performance boost from just a small amount of carbs 
than if you were to have like a massive carb load before that because you're more sensitive to it and you kind of really ignite this sort of a uh, performance yeah you know like you said don't doubt the placebo effect the placebo yeah. effect in some cases, <laughs> stronger than anything that you can take uh your expectations lay a huge foundation you know if you start a keto diet and your expectation is that your performance is going to is going to suffer your performance is probably going to suffer and if you reintroduce carbohydrates and your expectation is that you're going to see an increase in performance, you're probably going to see an increase in performance. And, yeah. you know, we see this with athletes all the time. Like you get all these athletes who they have these silly pregame rituals that, you know, that maybe it's nutrition related, maybe it's not, but you know, it's highly doubtful that consuming, you know, two massive platefuls of spaghetti is, is the best thing for your performance. But if your whole life you've been taught that carb loading is a good thing and your expectation is that it's going to improve your performance, it just might. So, you know, the placebo effect is just as powerful. Yeah, don't mess with the routine, so to say. If something is working, then don't mess with it. I know this steak doesn't exist. Yeah, exactly. Um, but I want to come back to the, uh, the idea of losing weight with keto a little bit. Uh, we, we mentioned that, you know, you shouldn't focus on the ketones and, uh, that the ketones themselves aren't going to necessarily equal fat loss. So, uh, how can people, you know, make sure that they do end up losing weight uh, with keto if that's their goal? Yeah, that's a great question. I think, um, my two biggest things, and, and I've, I've already said these two words, well, I guess three words multiple times throughout this, this podcast, but I think uh, inflammation and insulin sensitivity are the two most important things to consider. And I think they're, they're the two biggest reasons why health in general is where it's at, where a lot of people are suffering in their health and, you know, improving your insulin sensitivity and reducing your inflammation is two of the primary reasons why keto can help in so many different ways. So when it comes to weight loss, if you're coming from, like I said, the standard American diet, you're going to see weight loss just cutting out carbohydrates. You know, you, you've been following this diet where you're eating a ton of refined carbs, ton of refined sugars. You have a ridiculous amount of inflammation and insulin resistance that when you just go to a standard keto diet, or I shouldn't say standard, but what's becoming the standard keto diet of, you know, just eat bacon, have, you know, eggs. You don't worry about quality of anything. Have some keto sweets, like whatever. Um, that's better than the alternative. So you're going to see improvements and you're going to see weight loss. But what tends to happen over, and that's irrespective of your ketone levels, like you said. Um, but over time, what happens is, is that most people tend to hit a plateau. And that's because you're not really optimizing these two things, which is mm. insulin resistance or insulin sensitivity and, and especially inflammation. And which is why food quality, I think, is the most important. So if you're asking me what the, the most important way to make sure that you're experiencing progress long-term, uh, especially when it comes to weight loss. It's not about macros, in my opinion. It's not about calories. It's about food quality. Um, these, and this is something that over the last probably six to eight months, I've become a lot more, I've, I've talked about a lot more. I'm becoming a lot, I think it's, it's super important for a lot of different reasons that we can get into. But if you're consuming a diet where, you know, a keto diet where it's bacon and eggs in the morning, uh, low quality grain finished beef in the afternoon and a fathead dough keto pizza in the evening, which I've done that, you know, when I was in grad school, that's how I was doing keto. I didn't know any better. Um, that's, it's better than, than what else you could be doing with your diet, but it's not the most optimal. Uh, the food quality that you have is super important. If you're having beef, 
that's like me, there's two different, and, th and this is one of the reasons why we see such conflicting results in research too. You and me could be following a ketogenic diet where, you know, you, we could be have the same macros, same calorie intake. You might be consuming grass fed, grass finished beef, uh, keeping like dairy low. Um, you know, you're having organic vegetables, all these things. You're optimizing your food quality. And I might be following a keto diet where I'm eating out at a restaurant. I'm having uh, grain finished beef cooked in vegetable oils um, without the bun, uh, with, topped with bacon. And it's like fake cheese. It's like fake orange cheese that we see. And we might both be in ketosis. Uh, we might both even have the same level of, of blood ketones. But our diets are drastically different. And yours is going to be a lot richer in omega-3s. You're going to have a lot less omega-6s in your diet. Um, you're going to have way better inflammation levels, and that's going to be lead to better results long-term. It's probably going to prevent you from having a plateau. So I think that that's kind of the big thing with keto is that, you know, you can do, we see this in research all the time. You can do anything with your diet and see changes. Like it's the same reason why a, a vegetarian diet, for instance, can see results. If you are on a bad diet, high in processed carbs, and you go on a vegetarian diet, you will see improvements in your health. Of course you will. Um, that doesn't mean that it's a good diet. And that's the same thing for keto. Uh, just because you can eat a diet based solely on bacon and see some increases in, in your health doesn't mean that it's necessarily a good diet and probably going to lead to a plateau long term. Yeah, yeah, it is. Uh, the, the quality of the diet is, is going to drastically change the final outcome. And uh, like you said, inflammation and uh, insulin sensitivity, the one of the most uh, important things for general health as well. And not only like for fat loss, but, you know, preventing from getting heart disease or something like that as well. So definitely something yeah. to pay attention to. Oh, I was going to say the heart disease that you brought up is, is really important too, because this is something that, you know, I went to a couple months ago, I went to uh, low carb Houston where I got to listen to like the, the best um, keto researchers that are in like, uh, like the heart uh, health society. So people like Dr. Dave Feldman, uh, Dr. Nadir Ali, um, all these great people that were talking about like cholesterol and stuff like that. And, you know, if you look at a ketogenic diet, you're going to see increases in cholesterol. You're, you're probably even going to see increases in LDL because it, it has to happen. You're eating more fat and we're trained to think that that's a bad thing, but it's not necessarily a bad thing. Now, what the problem is, is if you have increased levels of LDL with high levels of inflammation, that's where LDL can really come in and, and be harmful. So if that's why when we look at a keto diet, people who aren't considering this, they're kind of missing the boat because if you're following a low quality keto diet, like we just said, you know, one where I'm sitting at a restaurant eating poor quality meat cooked in vegetable oils, I'm going to have these, I might have these increases in cholesterol and LDL and stuff with increases in inflammation. And now that high LDL is a problem. Yeah. Whereas you, you following diet your way, you might see increases in LDL, but that LDL isn't a problem because you don't have high inflammation. Exactly. So that's something that a lot of people are missing the boat on too. Like it's not just about aesthetics. It's not just about weight loss. There's so many other components and food quality is something that we should be considering. Yeah, exactly. And even, even if you are consuming, let's say, high quality ingredients like grass-fed and pasteurized or pastured eggs or something like that, then you can still mess it up and still damage your health. For instance, if you you know, fry your eggs, uh, overcook them and, you know, oxidize the cholesterol, then that's also still going to be damaging to your health. So you can even still mess up healthy food if you, you know, cook it the wrong way or if you, yeah, damage the nutrients in some way. Yeah, 
exactly. And, and, that's, that's, and there's, there's, there's no studies that are kind of controlling for that. <laughs> so you have to kind of put yeah. it into your own conscience. Yeah, that's all, that's all kind of, that's the anecdotal stuff, right? Like we, yeah. it'd be impossible for us to ever research those things. But if we look at, we know that if you, if you fry foods at high temperatures, you're going to denature the proteins, you're going to oxidize the fats, you're going to lose a lot of the, you're going to cook off a lot of the micronutrients. Mm. Uh, you're going to lose a lot of the benefits of it. And again, doesn't mean that you won't see improvements in your health. It's still better than what you were doing before, but you're not really, you're kind of missing that last 20%. You're not really optimizing it as well as you could. Um, so I think that, yeah, the way you cook your food, the way you choose your food, the sourcing of it, all of that stuff makes a difference. And I would really like to see as keto keeps getting more popular, you know, the last two years keto has blown up. It's gotten very popular. I would like to see in 2019 and 2020 more people having this conversation and talking about this stuff because I think that it's, I would much rather have people focusing on their food quality than just focusing on reducing their carbohydrates. I think that they're, they're missing all of the benefits or they're missing, you know, they're not getting everything that they could out of the diet if they're just looking at it simply from a macronutrient perspective. Yeah, that is true. But uh, how, how can a person kind of overcome a plateau if they do hit it? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, food quality, like we just said, is, is a big one. Um, if you're eating stuff that's pro-inflammatory, you're going to be, you're going to get stuck at a plateau. You're not going to be able to push through it. That's kind of first and foremost where I'll tell people like, let's take an actual look at your diet and say, what are you eating? What type of foods are you putting in your body? Um, that's kind of the biggest one. And then after that, I think that there's a couple different things that you can look at. Um, if you're not tracking, I think that you should consider your carbohydrate amount. Um, I'm not a huge fan of tracking. I don't think that it's the most important thing, but if you're not tracking, you you are definitely prone to over-consuming carbohydrates, especially with some of the hidden carbohydrates that you can find in like packaged, pre-packaged foods uh, that you wouldn't find in natural foods. So, you know, getting back to the basics, making sure that you're not accidentally, you know, I've, I've had so many times where I talk to somebody and they're like, you know, I'm stuck at a plateau. Uh, what can I do to to push through it? And it's like, well, how many carbohydrates are you consuming? They're like, well, I'm consuming 20, 20 to 30. So, well, how about just track them for a couple of days? And they'll come back and be like, oh, I'm consuming like 60 or 70. I had no idea. Mm-hmm. And which seems like a small difference, but we've seen plenty of studies where, you know, greater carbohydrate restriction can mean greater weight loss. So if you're stuck at a plateau, definitely something to consider. Um, but then after that, I think some of the actual food choices are important. Like a lot of people overconsume dairy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think that dairy... And in by itself is necessarily a bad thing, but I think that most of the commercially available dairy probably isn't very good. Um, most of the nutrients cooked out of it, you know, and um, lactose is, is something that a lot of people tend to have problems with. Casein is something that a lot of people tend to have problems with. Um, if your gut's inflamed from consuming a ton of dairy, then chances are you're going to hit a plateau. So I think that that's another big one. Uh, and then weight or uh, exercise. I think is a big one. So most people, they kind of forget that part of things. Um, Of course, you don't have to exercise to see improvements in your health, but we know that exercise is is great for your health. It's great for weight loss. So if you're at a plateau and you're not exercising, that's a great way to try to push through it. Hmm. Yeah, because, uh, you know, although, like we said, you know, it's not it's not just calories in versus calories out. Calories still matter <laughs> to a certain extent, and uh, you can't really expect to 
lose weight if you do, if you don't even know how many calories you're consuming or how many carbs or how many fats and such because yeah chances are you maybe still simply end up consuming too many calories and uh, no no sort of a placebo effect is going to help you there <laughs> you're still going to gain gain weight yeah definitely and i think um you, like like you said calories in versus calories out i'm i'm not one to say that i think calories are the most important thing but they of course they play a role uh and you what you tend to see like when I start somebody on a keto diet somebody asks me how to start what I'll usually tell them is don't worry about that stuff first focus on making sure that you're consuming the right foods get that locked down and for most people what you'll see is that because of what we talked about at the very beginning of this episode um, because of the reductions in appetite and stuff like that people incidentally tend to calorie restrict so mm -hmm. usually you can kind of start you can see a lot of progress and sustained progress without having to worry about tracking but for somebody who has impaired appetite signaling or for somebody who is eating a maybe lazier keto diet where you know they're they're cooking keto cheesecakes every night and that's leading to, to have more hunger and they're overeating that's going to be obviously hindering their progress so you know that's something that if you, you got to sit down and you have to weigh it out like if you thought you were eating 2,000 calories but really you're eating 3,000 calories that's probably a good place to start where you need to find where you need to be at mm. so like you said, not the most important thing, but of course it plays a role. Mm, for sure. Are there any other kind of ingredients or foods that they can eat to kind of suppress inflammation and uh, promote uh, healing of the body? Well, anything that has uh, omega-3s in it are obviously going to be a good thing. So um, fish, which is kind of controversial because it's really hard to get high quality fish uh, it, it's you know you really it's, it's kind of a crapshoot you really don't know what you're getting when you go and you buy fish right. uh, but you know taking things that that are high omega-3s uh, can definitely be can help reduce inflammation um, but also exogenous ketones you know a lot of uh, a lot of research showing that exogenous ketones can reduce inflammation uh, it can help improve mitochondrial function there's a lot of things that they can do um, not as much human research as I'd like to see at this point, but still quite a bit um, of, of evidence showing that that can be beneficial. So I think that that's another big one. Um, and, and really anything that can increase your ketone levels for that matter. So MCTs could be uh, another great way to reduce your inflammation as well. Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. Uh, what about uh, sort of uh, going through some sort of elimination diet that uh, helps with that? Yeah, an elimination diet, that's, that's another great one to point out. And Really, one of the that's why I think you know carnivore carnivore is so big right now. Everybody's talking about it. Me and Dr. Augustin talk about this all the time. Like one of the reasons why we think carnivore is so great is because it's really just an intense elimination diet. Um, keto really is an elimination diet to an extent. It's just not as as intense. It's you're cutting out one major food source. But when you go carnivore, for instance, you're cutting out everything. You're only eating one food group. It's meat. And one of the reasons why that's beneficial is because you're eliminating all these other foods out of your diet. And why that's important is because you're killing off most, most of your gut bacteria. And, you know, the bacteria in your gut play a huge role in your health in general, but especially inflammation. You know, a lot of people have inflamed guts because they have, you know, these bad bacteria in their gut that are, you know, fermenting the foods that they're eating and promoting a ton of inflammation, leaky gut, all this stuff. But when you do an elimination diet, you really get, it's almost like a gut reset. You get to kill off everything that's in there, um, which gives you an opportunity to repopulate the gut with healthy bacteria to help keep your, your inflammation low, um, which is really important. A lot of people miss that component of an elimination diet is what you do after. 
So if you do a elimination diet and then you follow it up with a, a crappy diet afterwards, you really are getting like 20% of the benefit. Uh, you're missing out on what you should be doing, which is you have a, you know, your bacteria, your gut bacteria is back at baseline. You have a great opportunity. It's like a blank canvas. You can go in, you can repopulate it with what it should be uh, populated with by, you know, eating fermented foods and different things like that. So, um, but yeah, an elimination diet's a great way to do that. It's, it's, you know, you can go in and you can take probiotics and prebiotics and do all this stuff. But if you, if you have bad bacteria in your gut, it's not going to make a difference. So yeah. uh, elimination diet's a great way to do. Yeah, because it's, it's a, like uh, pouring gasoline on the fire again, so to say, of uh, populating the wrong type of bacteria if, if it's all messed up. So uh, kind of yeah. some most people's guts are slightly inflamed and whether that be from coming from a pad you know coming from a bad uh, diet background or simply having some sort of a dysbiosis from the environment or something and uh, yeah they do kind of have to pay more attention to this so yeah it's it's probably a good uh, short-term strategy yeah and that's why you know people have to consider these things when they're looking at health like a lot of people like i get it that it's complex and there's there's so it's multifaceted there's so many different things that are related to your health you know it's it's but when when you break it down to its core it's the food that you're putting in your body and if you're putting low quality foods in your body or you're putting foods that are um highly processed or they're they're inflammation promoting then you're not going to see the changes in your health that you want to see or at least not as robust as you could be so that's something that if you if you break it down to its fundamental core you want to eat real high quality foods and if you do that then you incidentally are going to check a lot of these boxes you're going to check the box of improving your gut health improving the fuel that's available to your body you know improving insulin sensitivity inflammation all of these things so it is as complex as it is our health it's you know so many different things our like our gut communicates with our brain that communicates with the rest of our body uh, it's such a complex process, but at the end of the day, if you put the right foods in your body and you fuel yourself properly, you can kind of hit all of these things. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I think like, uh, the prevention of these things is, is the, probably the best thing about it, so to say. So you have to make sure that you're not going to even start eating, uh, poor quality foods or you're not going to oxidize the cholesterol or something like that. <laughs> so, so you would avoid these things altogether before they happen even. Yeah. Yeah, prevention is obviously the best medicine if you can do it. If you can avoid health problems, you you're, have a much better starting place. But you know, if, if you haven't been able to avoid those things, that doesn't mean that it's too late. You can always reverse things around, get everything on point, and you know, your body can make changes pretty quickly. So if you, yeah. if you stick with it and you do the right things, then you can, you can turn the table for yourself. Yeah. Uh, what do you eat yourself uh, on a given day? Yeah, it, you know, I do a ton of self-experimentation, so it really depends. I'm actually just coming off doing carnivore. Um, I was experimenting with a, uh, a two-week carnivore kind of gut reset where I was doing, um, basically what I did was is I was doing fish and meat only for two weeks. I was fasting in the morning, and then I would do like, you know, sardines and beef uh, for lunch. And then for dinner, I would have like salmon and, and beef of another, you know, steak or ground beef or something. And I did that for two weeks. And then what I did is then I, I started implementing like avocados into the mix. Uh, so I would have like maybe half an avocado to a full avocado a day on top of that diet. And then I did a couple weeks of um, doing like carnivore during the week, followed by like almost like a 
vegetable like refeed on the weekends where I would have like a ton of vegetables on like mm-hmm. Saturday and Sunday, mm-hmm. um, like salads and, and, you know, asparagus, Brussels sprouts, different things like that. So that was just kind of an experiment that I did on a daily basis, like the standard diet for me. I like to, um, I fast in the morning because I do a lot of my writing and researching in the morning. I feel like it gives me the best, um, best cognitive boost. So what I'll do is like, I follow more of a fat fasting approach where I'll do like exogenous ketones or MCTs in the morning with my coffee, um, fast till probably between noon and two. Um, I'm pretty much, I'm an intuitive eater. So I'll usually just listen to my body. If I'm hungry, I'll eat. Um, if I'm not hungry, then I'll, I'll extend the fast a little bit. Um, so then first meal of the day, I really enjoy having breakfast still as my first meal of the day. So usually it's like eggs. I'll do like eggs and avocado, um, as my first meal. And then for dinner, it would, it'll be a usually pretty light meal, maybe like eggs, avocado and some spinach. And then, uh, for dinner, it'll be, you know, some usually either fish or, um, beef of some sort, whether it's steak or ground beef, uh, usually a couple more eggs and then a, a good portion of a vegetable on the side, whether that's a side salad or like asparagus or Brussels sprouts or something mm. like that. Mm. Yeah. I've actually seen some, some of your Instagram posts and, uh, you eat some lion's mane as well. I, I see some mushrooms. Yes. Uh, so I love mushrooms in general. I think that they're fascinating, um, from a, nutrition perspective but even from like a scientific perspective i like one of my kind of passion research side projects is like researching like uh psychoactive mushrooms and their like impact on medicine and stuff and um lion's mane it was really crazy i've, I've been taking lion's mane like as a powder for probably six months eight months there's a lot of research with uh just improving like brain health um I think Paul Stamets is actually on a recent podcast. He's a mycologist and he was talking about, he has like a patent he's coming out with where he's using like lion's mane for uh, neurodegenerative diseases as like a medicine. So there's, there's a ton of, of good research on it. And I was at a farmer's market in uh, Austin, Texas. And I saw that there was a guy that he was, he had fresh lion's mane and I'd never seen it before. And I guess the reason why I'd never seen it before is because what I was told was that it's actually an endangered mushroom. So mm. this guy's actually, uh, they're like growing it in a lab. Um, I think, I don't know if they take spores and they grow it. I'm not sure exactly how they do it, but I got some of it and, you know, I chopped it up and I was cooking it and it, it tastes fantastic. It's, it's mm. really good. And I reached out to uh, Hamilton Morris, who is a, um, he's like a, I don't know his exact title, but he's like a um, psychoactive uh, drug chemist. He has a show on Viceland and I think it's on Netflix and stuff called Hamilton's Pharmacopoeia. And, uh, and he just does a bunch of research on just like mushrooms in general. So his, his research research is more on like psychoactive mushrooms, but I figured I'd reach out to him on lion's mane and see what his thoughts were. And he said something that like I, I thought was pretty outstanding is he was like, you know, I don't know why people are eating lion's mane in powdered form. It's the best tasting mushroom on the planet. And he, he told me, he's like, just, you know, pan fry it with some, a uh, little bit of olive oil, a little bit of salt and a little bit of turmeric. And I did that. And there was, it's one of the most delicious things I've ever had. So if you have an opportunity to get fresh lion's mane, it's, it can be a little bit expensive compared to other mushrooms, but it is well worth it. It's one of the most delicious things I've had. Mm. Well, yeah, it's interesting. I do take like a polar lion's mane, uh, but uh, I haven't had it like in a real form, so <laughs> I should yeah. uh, try it out in the f- near future. But yeah, yeah, I'm not. Yeah, I'm not sure 
like cooking it, if you lose, like, I don't know if, if you get more of the benefits in consuming it yeah. as a powder, um, you know, this way of doing it, it's probably just for taste. I imagine if you cook it, you're probably losing some of its benefits. So, you know, if you're trying to get the benefits out of it right now, I would say powder is probably the best form, but I don't know enough about it to say. Well, uh, well, I think like a tincture is probably better, so to say that. Yes. Uh, yeah, definitely. Hmm. So yeah, Chris, uh, it's been awesome talking with you and uh, really gained a bunch of uh, knowledge uh, about keto adaptation and such. So people definitely will uh, learn a, a bunch of from this episode. Uh, but uh, wh- before I ask my last question, where can people learn more about you and your work? Yeah, so if you guys want to see more of my work, uh, the best spot right now is probably Instagram uh, at The Ketologist. I also have a website that's theketologist.com that I've been uh, pretty slow at making it look better and, and putting out more work. Um, but you know, 2019, one of my big goals is to devote a lot more time into putting out more writing and more work on that site. So uh, if you're looking for more stuff in the future, that would be a great spot to go. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. And, uh, my last question is, uh, what would be this one piece of advice or a habit that you wish you adopted sooner that improved your body and your mind? Food quality, I think is the the biggest one ever since I've focused on food quality and, and making sure that I'm getting, uh, food that's sourced. Well, um, I've noticed dramatic increases in my health that I, you know, I was seeing these improvements before, but not to the same degree that I am now. And ever since focusing on these things, I've noticed so much better changes. I think a lot of people should focus on that. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is uh, the uh, kind of overlooked topic and uh, probably something that will show like some of these uh, drastic changes. Definitely. Yep. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, it's been great talking with you, Chris, and uh, looking forward to your future work. So uh, thanks for coming to the show. Awesome. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Had a great time. Yeah, I'll see you around. That's it for this episode of the Body, Mind and Power podcast. If you want to support us, then I would greatly appreciate it if you could leave us a review on the iTunes or the other social media platforms. Definitely check out the show notes for the topics that we discussed in this episode. Thanks for listening. My name is Seem. Stay tuned for the next episode. Stay empowered.